Welcome to Fast Company Digest, essential stories from tech, design, impact, and work life, narrated by NOAA app. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor and host of the New Way We Work podcast, Kathleen Davis. Here are this week's stories. First, if you find yourself on the job hunt in the near future, there's a chance you'll be sitting down for an interview with a bot. AI has been used in the application process at many companies to screen resumes, but now more companies are using bots to conduct interviews. Here's what a bot job interview looks like. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. For Noah, this is Sam Scholl reading from Fast Company. We're on the 26th of February, 2024. Stephen Melendez writes, Your next job interview could be with a bot. If you soon find yourself on the job hunt, there's a growing chance you'll be sitting down with a bot for an interview. AI is increasingly involved in the application process at companies ranging from fast food restaurants to software startups, helping to screen resumes, manage scheduling, and conduct interviews. Employers say the technology is a near necessity in a competitive landscape, where job postings can see hundreds or even thousands of applicants who are expecting responses at internet speed. In the case of retail and restaurant jobs, leaving applicants with a good post-application impression, regardless of whether they ultimately get the position, is particularly important, because those potential hires are also potential customers, says Barb Hyman, founder and CEO of the Australian startup Sapia.ai. They're going to reject hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, but they don't want to lose them, she says, and they want them to feel that they got a fair go. Sapia's core offering is an AI chatbot that conducts brief first-round job interviews through a text interface, which Hyman says can be lower stress and more convenient for job seekers. Applicants give short answers, generally 50 to 150 words, to questions about their skills and experiences. The AI system maps those answers to particular personality traits like humility, critical thinking, and communication skills, and assigns applicants a personality profile. Change is something that excites you rather than threatens you, was one insight I received during a demo session. Meanwhile, employers get a short list of matching candidates. I didn't want to have a huge team of people just doing really mundane screening of entry-level roles, says Rose Phillips, head of partner resources at Starbucks Australia, which has been using Sapia to hire for in-store positions since June. The other reason was to try and improve the quality of applicants that we were referring to our store managers, since they don't have a huge amount of time to spend on recruitment. Sapia's competitors offer AI for any number of stages of the hiring process. HireVue, for example, uses AI to assist in recorded video interviews, while Moonhub's AI scours the Internet for potential job candidates whom traditional recruiters might otherwise miss. Other companies use AI in more limited ways, like offering chatbots that can collect basic factual information from applicants and answer questions about the application process. AI hiring companies generally claim that in addition to being efficient, their software is trained to avoid bias based on race, gender, and other protected classes. But critics caution that AI can pick up the existing prejudices of the corporate world. An experimental AI recruiting system at Amazon several years ago 
was famously abandoned after reportedly discriminating against women based on keywords more common in women's resumes. And stories of AI bias in other domains are almost too numerous to list. Simply teach an AI system to predict who will fare well in an already biased system, and you'll likely build a bigoted bot. While AI can be designed to mitigate bias, I don't even know if that's the norm. I would say that's not the norm necessarily, says Frida Poli, the co-founder and former CEO of Pymetrics, who in 2023 co-authored a paper on using AI to fight hiring bias. And so we do have to be wary of the fact that AI can also mirror and magnify human bias. Poli is no longer affiliated with Pymetrics, and the company didn't respond to inquiries from Fast Company. In the United States, assessing hiring tools for bias typically includes looking at whether they produce a disparate impact on particular groups, like certain genders or races. An Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, guideline, known as the Four-Fifths Rule, holds that a job-related assessment should be considered suspect if the passing rate of one group is less than 80% of the best-performing group. But, Scholars have long said the four-fifths threshold, which has been in place since the 1970s, feels more or less arbitrary. And as Center for Democracy and Technology attorney Matt Scherer points out, it's possible for AI screening systems to pass the disparate impact test in ways that aren't actually useful. That could mean shortlisting roughly equal numbers of people from different races or genders, while still doing a poor job of evaluating candidates besides, say, white men. They'll come up with a tool that selects or scores people at roughly the same rate across demographic groups, says Schurer. The problem is that that approach doesn't necessarily get you, for example, the best women candidates if you're in a traditionally male-dominated job. Instead, what it'll give you is female candidates who share the most traits with male candidates. Federal law generally doesn't require companies to disclose AI systems they're using or AI hiring vendors to share information about how their systems work or what sort of anti-bias testing they've done. That means it's often difficult for job applicants to know much about systems in use at particular companies and how they make decisions. In some cases where AI is used to review resumes or recorded video interviews, applicants may not even know it's being used at all. A New York City law that attempts to remedy that, known as Local Law 144, went into effect in 2024, but experts say so far the impact has been limited. The law requires NYC employers who use an AI tool that substantially assists or replaces discretionary decision-making in employment decisions to commission an annual independent bias audit, publish the results, and notify local job applicants that the tool is in use. But a study published in January identified only 18 employers that posted audit reports, which the study authors say may be due to a loophole enabling employers to determine whether AI is sufficiently involved in decision-making to trigger the law's requirements. And since the law doesn't create a central repository of audit reports, it's effectively impossible to compile a list of employers creating them under the law other than by clicking their websites one by one. Even auditors can have difficulty accessing details needed to understand how well AI systems work. According to a forthcoming follow-up study, 
That's because the audit requirement doesn't apply to the AI companies that operate the systems and have data about how they work, only to the NYC employers who use their services, perhaps because they're more cleanly under city council jurisdiction. Really, almost nowhere else in the digital economy do we put regulatory obligations on the end user, says Jacob Metcalf, a researcher at Data and Society and one of the authors of both studies. AI companies would point out that they do take steps to ensure applicants are comfortable with the experience. Sapia shares its personality profiles. Video interview firms often let applicants rehearse and reshoot video until they're comfortable with it. And HireVue in 2021 announced it had eliminated a controversial feature that visually analyzed applicant video. That made job seekers self-conscious about facial movements and wary of discrimination based on attributes like skin color, says Lindsay Zuluaga, chief data scientist at HireVue. And the company found it added little useful data on top of analyzing what applicants were saying. At some point, we decided the natural language processing piece is just getting so much more powerful, says Zuluaga. Let's just drop the rest of it. But a Pew Research Center survey released in 2023 found many Americans are generally wary of AI hiring tech, with 71% opposed to AI making a final hiring decision and 41% opposed to AI reviewing job applications at all. Some 66% of U.S. adults say they wouldn't want to apply to a job with an employer using AI to help in hiring decisions, according to Pew. With some respondents concerned about bias and the general limitations of AI to understand a job candidate the way a human would. Of course, dissatisfaction with the job application process didn't begin with AI. Job seekers have for years complained about hiring bias, impersonal application processes, recruiters overly reliant on mechanistic buzzword matching, and unsettling personality tests. Indeed, says Schurer, part of the reason it can be hard to automate employment decisions is that unlike other applications of machine learning like email filtering, where people generally agree which messages are spam, there's nothing like a universal consensus about how to evaluate workers or what makes a good employee. There isn't usually massive agreement across lots of different managers and recruiters on exactly how good or bad each employee is at their job, he says. And, despite optimism among some of the Pew survey participants about human understanding, bias by human hiring staff is well documented. Hiring staff have a tendency to look for candidates that look like themselves, and people's gut instincts are often more flawed than they realize. Oft-cited research from the hiring site Ladders suggests human recruiters screening resumes often spend only six or seven seconds per candidate, which, Poli says, makes skewed decision-making essentially inevitable without the aid of an automated system carefully designed to fight bias. It's not to say that the human mind can never make unbiased decisions, says Poli. It's just not going to do it in this standard resume review process that is six seconds long. In theory, that could be addressed by more rigorous human screening, with trained evaluators carefully weighing each applicant's pluses and minuses. Schurer suggests human evaluation could be coupled with AI tools limited to providing candidates with basic information, verifying they meet minimum job requirements and perhaps suggesting candidates that might be worthy of a second look. But at the moment, when employers looking to ramp up staffing seem naturally wary of assigning the workers they do have to do time-consuming candidate screening, 
dealing with AI seems increasingly inevitable for those looking for many jobs. You were listening to Fast Company, where Stephen Melendez writes, Your next job interview could be with a bot. This article was published on the 26th of February, 2024, and was read by Sam Scholl for NOAA. And next, writer Talib Vishram interviews the dean of the CUNY Journalism School about why, even amid mass media layoffs, applications are up over 45%, and Craigslist founder Craig Newmark is investing $30 million in future journalists. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. For NOAA, this is Sam Scholl reading from Fast Company. We're on the 26th of February, 2024. Talib Visrum writes, Is journalism school unethical at a time of mass layoffs? As the dean of the CUNY Journalism School talks with me on the phone, She's sifting through 195 admission applications. They're up 45% from February of 2023, and it's still early in the recruitment season. Part of this may be due to a post-pandemic bump, but there's likely more to it. Spikes during contentious election years are common, says Dean Graciela Machowski, as potential students sense that journalism can be powerful in moments of crisis. I, too, applied to CUNY J School during a time of political upheaval, starting my master's midway through Trump's first year in office. A few months before I graduated in 2018, Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, infused $20 million into the school, which was immediately, and to the chagrin of many of my classmates, rechristened as the Craig Newmark School of Journalism. Newmark is continuing to donate and his latest $10 million contribution means that starting in 2027, CUNY will be the first journalism school in the country to be entirely tuition-free. But the journalism industry itself is in a moment of crisis, visible in the masses of recent layoffs. Both the dean and the donor see it as a transitional period, arguing that it's not irresponsible to encourage students into a volatile industry, but rather that it's essential to train the next generation to shape the news landscape of the future. Media layoffs over the past months have been brutal. Just in 2024, Business Insider announced it was cutting 8% of its editorial staff, National Geographic laid off all its staff writers, and the Los Angeles Times slashed its newsroom by a quarter. Then, there was The Messenger, a cocky startup that claimed it was filling a centrist gap in the news market, and ambitiously predicted 100 million monthly readers. Instead, the journalistic Quibi, as the New Republic called it, spent $50 million in eight months and laid off all its staff in January. Most recently, Vice Media announced it will be shuttering its website and cutting several hundred positions. In January alone, 500 jobs were axed, to say nothing of the 43,000 jobs lost since 2005. Makovsky says the industry has been in a period of transformation for about two decades, trying to react to new technology and shifting methods of news consumption. It's fair to wonder if that started with a website called Craigslist. One report suggests that Newmark's ad service took $5 billion away from U.S. newspapers over the course of seven years because they had built their business models on classified ads. Newmark, for his part, disagrees, saying the shift started much earlier with the emergence of TV. 
Either way, as time goes on, Newmark is using his wealth to show his dedication to journalism, whether as redemption or not. By his own measure, he's donated about $200 million to journalism, including millions to legacy outlets like New York Public Radio and burgeoning ones like The Markup and The City. But it's CUNY where his philanthropy shines. The plan is for the entire class of 2027 to go tuition-free, with Newmark's donation along with some smaller endowments. Until then, many students won't be expected to pay depending on merit and means. The current class is 25% tuition-free. Next year's will be 50%. He views it differently from the investments of his wealthy peers. Investors forget that journalism is a public service, Newmark says. It is really a part of our national security. And instead of serving the country, they're trying to squeeze too much profit out of it. In the short term, my concern is that I want journalists to start off with good jobs and have as little student debt as possible, Newmark says. Students simply can't afford loads of debt, walking into an unstable industry renowned for low wages, at an average around $50,000 mark, with some local papers much lower. Far from seeing it as reckless to drive young people toward a rocky industry, Machofsky sees journalism school as a helpful step for those still eager to enter it. While people may have questioned the investment in the degree in the past, she argues it's more necessary than ever, as newsrooms don't have the resources to train rookie reporters on the job. And with more competition for fewer jobs, a degree could create an edge for a candidate. Journalism schools, and particularly affordable journalism schools like ours, open doors to the industry that otherwise, for a lot of people, will never be opened, Machofsky says. And there is still plenty of interest. Judging by Machofsky's stack of applications, people are still drawn to the career. She reads materials from candidates who've written about their desire to go into local accountability, investigative, or environmental fields. It feels like another spike after the 2016 Trump bump. Jake Nelson, an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Utah who studies the relationship between journalism and the public, agrees that contentious times, including election years, draw people to the profession. Journalists are valorized in these moments he says, particularly as they're able to hold powerful people to account. But Nelson says schools must adapt. These are not the J schools of the past, training strictly print reporters or broadcasters. CUNY prides itself on teaching a multitude of disciplines. I took classes in audio editing, photo, and basic coding, some of which were helpful, others less so. The program was also designed like a job. I was immediately thrown on a beat in the East Bronx quite the commute from my Brooklyn home, left to find stories and turn them in with strict deadlines, then encouraged to sell them as freelance articles to publications. To paraphrase a professor, journalism is a living, not a hobby. Given the broad range of journalism models today, schools will have to do a better job studying their potential audiences. There are billionaire-financed outlets, those funded publicly or by nonprofits, subscription models, and niche newsletters. We're not going to go back to one single model of news media, Machofsky says. You're going to see a fractured landscape where there's a very diverse set of answers. And schools will have to study how audiences are consuming news and then adapt their delivery methods accordingly. Nelson got his journalism degree in 2010 during a comparably quaint time for journalism when the only guidance was to have a Twitter account. He now teaches a social media class that focuses on how journalists can harness social media, but also the risks, 
such as online harassment and impacts on mental health. CUNY has added a journalism protection initiative to teach reporters safety at a time when they're mischaracterized as adversaries by large segments of the population. We have people in politics who talk about shutting down the press, who talk about arrest without due process, Newmark says, and they mean it. Journalism schools will continue to do the things they've excelled at, like providing connections within the industry. Those opportunities will be especially useful for more diverse students who haven't traditionally had the access to networking due to prohibitive costs and who have been long underrepresented in newsrooms. Diversity is a major priority at CUNY. Machofsky says it has never had a race-based admissions policy because it didn't need it. 63% of the current class identifies people of color. When you walk into the school, you're still in New York, she says. She believes the free tuition will attract even more diverse candidates. This all gives Machofsky hope in the next generation. I actually think these are the people who are going to change it, she says. We will not see this as a moment in which journalism or the journalism industry died. You were listening to Fast Company, where Talib Visserum writes, Is journalism school unethical at a time of mass layoffs? This article was published on the 26th of February, 2024, and was read by Sam Scholl for NOAA.